Well, good morning again, ZPC, and it is good to be here with you all. Uh, it is a cold morning here, uh, and so thank you for coming on this cold day. And again, it is good to have those of you who are uh, worshiping with us uh, at home. Uh, before I kind of uh, dig in this morning, I wanted to uh, just uh, let you guys know, several uh, weeks ago now, maybe a month or two ago, uh, our youth inquirers got together and we were making meals uh, for the uh, Million Meal Movement. Uh, I knew it was three M's. A million, and a lot of them went through, and none of those was movement. Yes, yeah, so... Uh, uh, and so that was, that was fantastic. So yesterday, uh, we kind of flipped things. We decided to raise the money for that. Uh, and so you can see here these young folks that gathered yesterday uh, that to make all these pizzas. We raised over $1,300 towards that. And so uh, I want to thank those of you who, uh, who ordered some pizzas, those of you who ate them, and of course, um, 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 Brendan and Kira and others who helped to uh, put all those uh, pizzas together. Rudy Bustamante, RJ Pollock. Um, what a great opportunity um, we're reminded of just how important it is uh, for us to, um, to be a part of a church where our children are empowered to, uh, to serve uh, in order to uh, be made more like Jesus, as we say, and to build for God's kingdom. So what a blessing uh, that was. And so thank you again to all those who put in the hard work for that. Well, we are continuing in our look at Grace dangerous. And so uh, hopefully you are able to continue to read as we kind of journey together uh, to, uh, in order to uh, go through all the New Testament in this year, in the year 2021. And so today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 16, uh, which you should have read this week. Uh, and we'll be looking more specifically at verses 21 through 28. And so I invite you to hear these words. Matthew says this, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we come to you this morning knowing we come to the one who gives us new life. We pray this morning that you would give us the courage to hear what it is that you would have to say to us so that we might live lives that are embedded deeper and deeper into who you are. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. 
Well, before we kind of dive into this too much, um, I think it would probably be wise to remember, uh, if you read it this week, what happened right before this particular scene. And what happens is that Jesus is asking the disciples, who do you think that I am? Now, we know that the disciples, as we said last Sunday, struggled. They were oftentimes getting things wrong. They misunderstood. They seemingly were disappointing Jesus repeatedly. But this time, they seemed to finally get it right. So it's kind of this climactic, this exciting moment because Peter, or Simon, says, you are Messiah. You are the Son of of the living God. This is a big moment. In fact, it's so big that Jesus here says, okay, you are no longer Simon. You are now Peter, right? Which means rock. And on you, I am going to build my church, right? And you don't have to know Simon Peter very well to know that after that statement, Simon's kind of thinking to himself, you know, I've never really liked my name Simon this feels more right. Rock. And so it's this great kind of exciting moment. We all celebrate because we've seen all of Simon's falls and now we're like, yeah, you're the best. Way to go, rock. He's like, thanks. That's how I picture it. And so Right after that, then, Jesus is feeling good, right? He's feeling like, okay, the relationship's growing. They've kind of reached this new stage of discipleship, which is why he begins to then open up even more so. He begins to trust them more. He becomes more vulnerable. He begins to let them understand exactly how things are going to unfold. And so he goes on to tell them, as we read, that the religious leaders um, are, are not going to like him. They are going to make him suffer, and eventually they will kill him, and then he will be raised in three days. And perhaps it was too soon for the disciples to have been told this, because the reality is they did not respond well. And you can just imagine, though, this was not what they had pictured. And so they were sitting there, you know, with some confusion, perhaps uh, perhaps anger, perhaps fear, or, or sadness, or anxiety, all these different emotions that would have been coming across their minds. I like what Tom Long says. He says that for Simon, at least, it's a bit like if you had just been named as the campaign manager for a promising presidential candidate, and then right after that, he tells you, well, in order for all of my goals to be accomplished, I'm going to have to be assassinated. It's not what they would have wanted to hear, right? What would you have been thinking, right? Some of them are probably thinking, oh, man, I keep messing up. I thought, I thought this was going to be the right guy, you know? There goes classic me. I just, oh, no, I put my eggs in the wrong basket. It wasn't Jesus. It must be somebody else. Others would have perhaps been thinking, man, we, we really love this guy. We've we, we begun to follow him. We've begun to really think that he's the, you know, the one that we're supposed to follow. I don't want to see him suffer or die. Others, of course, perhaps, you know, the most perceptive would have been thinking even further out and begin to wonder, well, if this is going to happen to Jesus, and if I am following him, then what is going to happen to me? So all of these different thoughts are going through the head of the disciples, but the newly minted rock he knew what he was going to do. And so he quickly, he pulls Jesus aside and he he tells him, look, (laughs) no, this is not 
going to happen. This is not the way that this is going to occur. Rock will not let that happen to you, Jesus. But Jesus, of course, was having none of that from Peter. We're told, um, it's a bit polite, really, the way that we say it in the the Scripture. Uh, Typically what it says is that Jesus turned to Peter. But more literally, in the Greek, what it means is that he turned on his heel. Have you ever had that happen to you? I was thinking many times when I was a kid and I was walking someplace with my mom or my mom was in the same room, uh, you know, and maybe she wasn't looking at me and I said something that I shouldn't have said. It happened maybe once. And, and, and I said that and all of a sudden she stopped and she turned on her heel. Do you remember that? It's like this great fearful moment, right, where you know that you are in trouble, right? So my point is that even before Jesus says anything to Peter, he realizes, right, he quickly becomes looking much more like gravel than like rock, right? He knows that he is about to be laid into, and he is. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You have set your mind on human things, not on things that are divine. Can you picture what it would have been like for Peter and for the disciples Right, I was thinking that in some ways it's a bit like when, uh, when, when, when Megan or I are emphatically correcting our children. We don't ever scream at them, of course. We only emphatically correct them. And as you're doing it to the one child, you see their three siblings kind of in the background, you know, and usually they're just kind of slowly backing up. Not so far as that they can't still hear because they want to hear what's going on, but far enough away to know that they won't get hit by the shrapnel. And so that's the focus. That's a, that's a picture that I have, I should say, of, of the disciples, right? That they don't know for sure because Simon took them aside. Peter took them aside. They don't know for sure what it is that Simon, Peter, said to Jesus. But what they do know is that they need to find out because they never want to say the same thing. Right? There's this, this moment of fear and anxiety as they all reflect on what Jesus has just said to Simon Peter. Now, there's a big part of me that honestly feels really bad for Simon, don't you? I mean, you, you got to feel kind of bad for the guy. I mean, this is, this is awkward. He, he goes from this great moment of being a rock to all of a sudden being anything but a rock. But at the same time, as I was thinking about it this week, I realized that in many ways, this is a real gift to us, this particular story and the fact that it's included in the Bible, right? Because what it does is it lets all of us know this, that the path of discipleship is not moving from one great accomplishment to the next, to the next, from one perfect act to the next perfect act and to the even more perfect act, but rather is a rocky journey where you grow and trust and and you follow Jesus even more deeply and things are going great. And then you have moments of doubt and uh, moments of amnesia where you forget God altogether and you, 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 you tend to not trust. This is, this is the journey, if you will, of discipleship. And, and, and by Matthew including this story, he is reminding us of that for those moments which we all have when we also do like Simon and forget that we aren't actually God and that God is God. But there's also this great grace of the fact that immediately after that, 
Immediately after Jesus rebukes Peter, he invites him and all the disciples back in and begins to tell them this is what the journey of following Jesus is going to look like. There are going, there's going to be death. There's going to be a cross that you have to carry, right? There's going to be suffering, Right? But Jesus doesn't excommunicate Peter. He doesn't say, well, it looks like i got to find another rock someplace because this one's not going to work out. No, no, no. He immediately invites him back into conversation, which helps all of us to realize that whether we are being a rock or whether we are being a stumbling block, that Jesus is always going to be right there with us. As Dale Bruner points out, the, the, the discipleship is a continual recommitment. And what we know is that Jesus will always be there in the midst of that recommitment, always inviting us back in. That is the grace, if you will, of grace dangerous, as our sermon series is titled. So as you've read it this week and as we think about it today, I want us to always, as we said, begin with that particular lens. We begin with the lens of grace. And then we begin to see the dangerous. Because you see, obviously, as you can kind of hear in this story, Jesus takes the dangerous part pretty seriously. You see, Jesus has so much grace and is so full of love for us that he refuses then to allow us to wander off the path that looks more like what we want, what Simon Peter wanted, what the disciples then may have wanted, what the disciples now may have wanted, rather than following where Jesus says that we should go and following where it is that Jesus is going. Jesus loves us far too much to let us live shallow, non-deathly lives, rather than to live lives that, yes, have death, so that we then can drink out of the deeper wells of the resurrected life. He loves us too much to allow us to just do what it is that we want to do rather than to experience the life that he wants to give us. And so that is why Jesus frames discipleship not as if it is all glory, but as if it is full of the cross. It is actually full of sacrifice. It is full of suffering and death. Discipleship is not discipleship without some sense of death. And the thing is, as Luke tells us in his own version of this story, it's, it's a death that we pick up daily. Pick up your cross daily, Jesus said in Luke. It is a continual commitment to die. So here's the thing. I would suggest today that one of the great detriments of many pastors and preachers, probably including myself, is that we have failed to be completely honest when it comes to what discipleship looks like. What we tend to do, because it's easier and it's more comfortable, is we tend to focus on just all the new stuff that you can have if you follow Jesus. You, you have more grace in your life, more love in your life, more peace in your 
life. All these things can be yours if you follow Jesus. It's a bit like what we do is we don't actually say, hey, nothing should really change about your pre-existing life. You just kind of get some Jesus seasoning, if you will, and you just kind of shake it over your pre-existing life. And once you've done that, your life will have more zip, more zest. It's just going to be even tastier, but nothing really needs to change. And what Jesus says here is, no, 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 there is a direct correlation between how much you are willing to die and how much resurrected life you are going to be able to live into. It's a bit like the garden, right? Jesus loved to use parables, and so we should probably try to think about parables as well. If you want a really flourishing gardener, and everyone knows here that I am no master gardener, but I at least think I have this figured out, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that if you want a really good garden, the way to get it is not just to keep putting more and more seeds into it. Well, it's not that great. Let's just pour some more seeds on there and see what happens. No, no, no. You have to actually, you got to till some stuff, right? You've got to, you've got to make it, bring in some air into that thing and you have to rip out some weeds. You have to kill the weeds because if you don't, no matter how wonderful all those seeds may be, no matter how promising they may be, the weeds will continually choke out all those new seeds. You will never have new life in that Jesus longs for you to have if you are not willing to actually look for places in your life where you need to die. You see, if we try to just have new life without having any death, we're not living the life of Jesus. We're living the life of an American who just wants more and more in a sense, and this is probably for all of us, but we live in America, and that's what I know best, who says, let's just have more and more without actually asking the question, what needs to die for us to have more life? Because that is clearly the model of discipleship that Jesus is giving to us. I like what Dallas Willard uh, says about this. Dallas Willard says, this says our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. It is a strategy bound to fail. In other words, you cannot just say, well, I'm going to add some of these things like loving my enemy and and being generous, doing all these things, but I'm going to just keep living as I have and as everyone else has. I'm not going to die to any of those things. I'm just going to add all these things and I'm going to expect things to change. So what does that mean? Well, let's look at the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we looked at the seventh chapter. It's kind of what Dallas Willard is alluding to. Let's, let's get really uh, uh, tangible and practical here. One of the things in the Sermon on the Mount that you may have heard uh, is, is, is this, this call to generosity. A people who are shaped by the kingdom of God, a people who are following Jesus, right, uh, that, that they are going to be a people who are generous, a people who are longing to be more generous, who don't serve God and mammon, as the New Testament says, as as the Sermon on the Mount says. That's great. So what does that mean? That we need to be more? It's not a trick question. That's good. You guys are good. You're getting this. We need to be more generous. Okay, great. Now here's the problem. I don't know if you guys have ever discovered this or not, but when you want to be more generous, it's not like you say, okay, Lord, 
You want me to be more generous? All right, let's just, let's do that. And, and, and then all of a sudden, more money appears and you can give that money away. You see what I'm saying? When you decide that you want to be more generous, there is no stimulus check from heaven that all of a sudden arrives in the post office, in your mail. Do you know what you have to do? This seems very elementary, but it's important. Do you know what you have to do in order to become more generous? You have to look at how you spend your money right now, and something has to die. There has to be something in this money that you are already having, whether or not it's the, it's the vacation budget, whether or not it's the new clothes budget, whether or not it's the eating out budget, whether or not it's the size of the house budget, whatever it is, something there has to die, something that you want has to die if you are actually then going to become a generous person. You, you, you can't just say, okay, well, I'm just going to add more generosity. And so whenever I get a little extra, I'll just give that away. No, no, no. Jesus says that's not how it's modeled. It is modeled by saying that whatever it is that I have, what of my own desires and hopes, what needs to die in order to make that happen in order to be more generous, right? It doesn't just appear. There are some weeds that need to be choked out. Or what about, what about anger? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, not only should you not be killing anyone, but you also shouldn't be angry. And then he goes on to say, look, if you're going to be angry, you need to change that. You need to go and apologize for whomever you're having this issue with. Okay, great. And so most of us say, all right, we write that down on our things to do list. Do not be angry. And what we tend to do is we tend to think I can just keep living the way that I've been living and just start trying to be less angry about it. Try it. It's not very successful. Because the question that almost always has to be asked when you want to start making changes, especially changes for Jesus, is not just what do I need to add to to make this happen, but what do I need to die to to make sure that I'm cultivating a person who is not angry. So what does that look like? Well, for some of us, of course, that means a grudge, right? I mean, sometimes we're angry. So it means, look, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to hold this over this person any longer. And most of us love holding things over people. It's great fun, but it brings this great anger, right? So we need, to, we need to let go of that. But for a lot of us, this is for me at least, when I know when, when I am most likely to be angry is when I have far too much going on in my life. When I have way too many things that I am trying to get done, when I feel like I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off, and I'm trying to do this and that and this and that, and then on top of all that, I say, okay, and now I want to add, don't be angry. When in reality, what we should be asking is, what do I need to die to? What do I need to kill off in terms of all these things that I need to do in order to cultivate someone then who's not running around all the time like a crazy person so that then I will not be as likely to be angry? I was reminded again of this week, I've told the story a few years ago, but uh, of this conversation between the aforementioned Dallas Willard and John Ortberg, right? John Ortberg, who for many years served a larger church out in, in uh, Menlo Park. 
And as soon as he got that church, he called his friend Dallas Willard and said, okay, what do I need to do? I want to be the best me that I can be. Tell me what I need to do. And Dallas Willard said this, you need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. To ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And so Dallas Willard said, okay, all right. Or excuse me, John Orpey wrote that down in his journal. He said, okay, what else? And Dallas Willard said, no, that's, that's it. The greatest detriment in this day and age to our spiritual life, he said, is hurry. And so you need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. What I love about that is it's almost violent language. It's deathly language. It's not just, well, you know, why don't you just scroll through everything that you have to do and just kind of say, I don't know, maybe I don't have to. No, no, no. It says ruthlessly eliminate. Go into everything that you have and everything that you are doing and find things that you need to die to so that then you are able to live a slower life. Because when you live a slower life, you are much more likely to live a life that it has less anger and that is more peaceful, as Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, that allows us to be more of a meek people, but it will only happen when you begin to kill off things in your life that are making you busy and making you run from one thing to the next. It will not just occur by magic and just by sprinkling non-anger into everything else that you are doing. It won't work. Or what about in the, in, 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 in the Sermon on the Mount? Where Jesus says, um, not only should you not commit adultery, but you also should not lust after others. Now, this can be a little awkward, and I'm going to keep this PG because um, I have my own kids that will be here soon. And, but I think we, it needs to be talked about a little bit. I mean, and, and I would suggest it's not just kind of, you know, sexual things for which we are called not to lust, but, but actually lusting even after other people's lives. We see that with coveting and with those sorts of things, just being jealous of what people have. Like, what are the things? We, we can't just sprinkle that non-lust or non-affairs over our lives, uh, pre-existing lives, and just say, okay, that will just make everything better. The question is always, if I am going to make this happen, to what do I need to die? Now, I realize that when I say what I'm going to say here in a minute, I'm going to sound like a real fuddy-dud, and, uh, and actually, yeah, but I've decided I'm going to be fine taking that mantle on today. It's, it's okay to be Pastor Fuddy Dud today. So that's what I'm going to do. Because here's what I want to suggest to you. This, is, this is, uh, uh, should be easy, I suppose. But just because something is on Netflix does not mean that you should necessarily watch it. And just because it's trending, it actually probably should almost be an inverse trend for most of us. I have to be honest with you in saying I am amazed at how rarely Christians' viewing habits look all that different from non-Christians' viewing habits. It's really pretty remarkable because when you see some of these shows, I just think to myself, well, there's no way. And look, I am not perfect in this either, but I just think there's no way that after having watched this, I am going to look more like Jesus after it than I did before. There's no way that after watching this, I'm going to live a more resurrected life. There's no way after watching this, I'm going to be in a better place to make sure that I'm not lusting after others than I did before. But let me be clear, this is not just about what we might stereotypically think about Netflix. Let's think about things like the Hallmark Channel. It's post-Christmas, so I feel more peacefully saying this. Or reality TV shows. 
Because the reality is this, what those things tend to cultivate, make no mistake about it, is a fixation, a dream on this incredibly unrealistic life that people are having. Oh, oh, their relationships are all so wonderful and everything turns out perfectly. Their spouse is amazing. My spouse stinks. Oh, look at that house. Look at the mess around here. Your real life just begins to stink. You think, oh, I just want that. And it will not cultivate a person who is following what Jesus longs for you to do in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's saying, you need to die to those things. Now hear me, I am not suggesting that you never watch anything on Netflix, that you never turn on the Hallmark Channel, or that you don't watch reality TV. Okay, I am suggesting you don't watch reality TV. But I am saying this. That we need to be a people who are thinking through, is what I am watching right now more important than making sure, you know, that I'm able to follow Jesus well? Is, is it so important that I have something to talk to people around the old water cooler or on Zoom about the latest show that I'm willing to do that even though it may take me closer to what Jesus has called us, not the direction in which Jesus has called us to go? Do, am I willing to actually die to some of these things that everybody else is doing or that I want to do so that I can live a new resurrected life. If you want to live in the life of the, the Sermon on the Mount, I promise you, you have to be willing to die to something else. Now look, there's a lot of other things that I could talk about. I wish I had more time. I'd love to talk about anxiety. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't be anxious over anything. You know why so many of us wrestle with anxiety? We wrestle with it because we think we aren't enough. I'm not good looking enough. I don't have enough money. I'm not successful enough. I, I don't have enough friends. I, I, I don't have a real place of significance. And we begin to think all those things and it begins to cultivate this anxiety within us. And then do you know that on average, we watch 4,000 advertisements a day? Do you know, pay attention, do you today, when you watch the Super Bowl Sunday, even those commercials, almost all of them, do you know what they are telling you? That you aren't good enough. You aren't smart enough. You're not quite pretty enough. You're not successful enough. You're not significant enough. Now, I've got good news for you, they say. If you buy this thing, then you will be all of those. And so we sit there and we think, oh, I have this anxiety. I want, I don't, I want to not worry. And then we put ourselves in positions to be continually invaded by things that are telling us those exact same things, that we aren't good enough, we aren't smart enough, we aren't good looking enough. Now, I realize that we cannot live our lives without ever being embedded or ever being invaded by any kind of advertisement. But I also think that we can be watchful of those advertisements. And if you have children or grandchildren, when those commercials come on, you can mock the heck out of them. I mean it. You can be aware of them. Do you see what they're promising? That if you drive that car, all of a sudden you're going to look like that? That's not going to happen. You look beautiful, even if you're driving a Yugo. Remember Yugos? Holy cow, where do those things go? Classics. Not really. Or, or, or what about where Jesus says uh, uh, that we are called to be the salt and the light? 
which means that we can't taste just like the world tastes. Well, the way to do that, the only way it seems to me for us to be able to do that is not to escape the world at all times, but it is to create space in our daily lives, in our weekly lives, where we aren't just surrounded by the world. What does that look like? That looks like meditation. What does that look like? We talked about before Christmas. What does that look like? That looks like Sabbath. That looks like creating space. Now, some of us think, oh, that's great, but I, I just don't, I don't have time for that. The average American touches his or her iPhone over two, over 2,600 times a day. The average American spends over 700 hours a year on social media. That's almost two hours a day. The average American watches over 2,600 hours of television a year. You think we could back that up to 2,500 hours? Like, like there is actual time that all of us have to create space to simply be with the Lord, to create space to, be, to Sabbath and to be with our family. There is that space so that we can then really understand what it means to be the salt and the light to the world. But the only way for that to happen is for us to be willing to die to some things. And if you are asking yourself the question, Lord, how can I live more like you? How can I be shaped more like Jesus and build for God's kingdom? Know this, that attached to those two critical questions is this, for that to happen, to what must I die? Because if you never get to that question, I can promise you, you will never be able to move further along in this journey if you are not willing to pick up that cross, if you are not willing to sacrifice something, if you are not willing to die, there is a direct correlation between your willingness to die and your ability to live a new, deeper, resurrected life. As I was thinking about this sermon today, I realized that in some ways it feels like it's a little bit too... You know, I, maybe I should be a little bit gentler or something like that. And maybe I'm just grouchy because it's so cold. And... But there is a part of me that, A, that, that sees how Jesus turned on his heel and called Peter Satan. That makes me realize that this is probably a pretty important thing. But there's also a part of me that feels like, Far too many of us are just kind of living lives with our brains on neutral and just kind of sucking in everything that comes to us and just says, that, that's just the way it is. And who then just think, well, let's just, let's just as, I've, as I've been saying, let's just, let's just shake a little Jesus seasoning on us and just see what changes. What Jesus knows, and I think he, he realizes, he thinks we need to get a little bit angry. That, that we actually need to get a little bit angry at, at, at the ways in which we are kind of being fed into this lie that we can have everything. That you can have all the Jesus and all the world. That you can have all the resurrection and all the death. You cannot have everything. And I think what Jesus would ask us is this simple question. When is enough enough? 
And when is the time for you to look at this and say, I don't actually need another pair of shoes right now. I don't actually need to scroll through three more pages of Facebook. I don't actually need whatever that may be, one more activity for my child. I don't actually need this or need that. What are you willing? Because you see what it is that God is calling us to. We don't just die to die. We die so that we can experience new, deep, resurrected life. So the question for us this morning is a very simple question. To what do we need to die? And I have asked this question 10 days before Ash Wednesday. And a part of the reason I did that is to give you some time to begin to wrestle with that question and to ask yourself, if this is how I want to live, if I want to be a person who is less angry, if I want to be a person who is less anxious, if I want to be a person who is more generous, that's wonderful. I have that goal. Great. What is that connected to, to which you need to die? And starting on Ash Wednesday, I encourage you, you can start tomorrow if you want, but to start that life now, to say, I'm going to begin this practice of death today. It can be very practical. Why? So that we can then live like we have never lived before a deeper, resurrected life because we have not been afraid to die to those things that keep us from experiencing the richness and the depth of Jesus Christ. May it be so. Amen? Let's pray. God, it is so easy for us to just add Jesus' seasoning to our lives without asking the more difficult question, the more painful question of to what it is that we need to die. So I ask this morning, Lord, that you would give us the courage and the honesty to ask that question. We're asking what ways have we just been kind of living our lives without really even reflecting on whether or not we need to die. We need to look for places to which we can die. So that we then can live lives that are more connected to you. So that we can begin to look more like you. And that we can begin to build for your kingdom. for your glory, and for yours alone. Amen.